In the lives of Native Americans, we all have one thing in common, bloodlines. The bloodlines are what connect our past to our future. In this podcast, we talk with indigenous women who are impacting the world for the better in big ways and small ways, while never forgetting to go back to their roots. Join Jeannie Burgess, member of the Peoria Tribe of Oklahoma, as she has conversations with powerful Native American women who are making a difference in their neighborhood, communities, and their world. Please subscribe and share and review our podcast. Thank you for joining us. Hello, everyone. This is Jeannie Burgess with Bloodlines, and I am especially excited to welcome my guest today. I have been waiting for this guest for a while because I'm just so excited um, to have her on and for all to meet her. Her name is Sharla Echohawk. Beautiful name, right? Sharla, uh, welcome to Bloodlines, and thank you so much for taking time. Tell, tell the audience about yourself. Aya Jeannie, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Um, I am Charlotte Echohawk, and I am a Peoria citizen. Uh, I'm also the Director of Cultural Preservation for the Peoria Nation, and um, I am the great-granddaughter of Amos Skye, the granddaughter of Helen Skye Kinder, and um, a lot of people know my mom, Leanne Reeves. So like you, there's a lot of uh, connections just in that Peoria kind of community that um, I certainly always was taught to express who claims me or <laughs> where I come from, right. who my family is. And so, uh, but uh, yeah, I um, have been uh, working for the Purias on and off um, most of my adult life. And uh, I have just moved back to Miami, Oklahoma uh, to be closer to my mom, but also um, I was, honored or privileged to when Chief Harper asked if um, I would be the director for cultural preservation at this time. Uh, we have a lot of work to do, but I, I most definitely said yes. So what does a director of cultural preservation do? Well, it's pretty broad. And so um, one of the th- things that I have to credit Chief Harper with is uh, he recognized in his first term, of course, he was just reelected this last March. But um, he realized that there were a lot of things that our tribe has uh, not been doing in that category of cultural preservation. And this isn't unique to just our tribe. This is something that all tribes, federally recognized tribes have to do, which is to um, maintain particular kind of administrative uh, responsibilities, if you will, uh, tribal historic uh, responsibilities. It's a huge category. We don't have enough time to talk about it, but it's something that we have to do um, with other agencies, state, federal, um, academic, all kinds of things like that. There's also repatriation, of course, which is exhaustive and 
Um, it feels never ending, but it's critical, important work. We have also just in the time since Chief Harper, he knew how important language revitalization was. Uh, so that's something that we put a lot of focus um, and attention to. And then in addition to that, what I have uh, recommended for our nation is to have a designated credentialed tribal archivist. And that's because there are so many things that our tribe needs to maintain and preserve that will be even after you and I are gone. And, you know, I always say purees we haven't even met yet need to be able to um, go to those particular things that we have spent the time and energy uh, because it is so important to preserve, archive, curate. And um, in addition to that, I've been reluctant to say genealogy because that's that, of course, opens up just an entire universe of things. So a credentialed archivist and family historian and the family historian part of it is so that we can know what you've now made this podcast about bloodlines, um, lineal descendancy with certain you know families and things like that. We all loosely know that, but to have that recorded and so that um, people can, you know, come from any place, uh, not just here in Ottawa County, but anytime they come to visit the tribe, if they want to know more about their family histories, that we're able to access that and have that um, available to our citizens. Now, you know, there's a lot of official business you do with what you do, a lot of official things that get done, a lot of um, logistical things that you work on. How do you connect all of those things that really must be done for the preservation of the tribe in the future with the heart of what it means to be a, a Peoria? How do you connect those dots? Well, I think, I think kind of, um, and I'm going to bring up that this is like us on the patio with a glass of wine. And when we're talking about having uh, a discourse from women in particular, it has been um, something that I've thought a lot about that we, we kind of conjure up these things that are about strength, resiliency. Um, it's because of women like your mother, my mother, mm -hmm. women even before them. Um, but I kind of try to carry all of that even with what we're trying to do here in cultural preservation so that uh, it, it falls in alignment with what is the other word is responsibility. It's just a, a responsibility that we have that it's, it's never uh, been something that has kind of been a choice. <laughs> so, right. Um, right. But it's, uh, all of those things, I think, are important because to make decisions that are sustaining for the tribe, we have to certainly understand where we are, who we are, um, and understand also where we've been. And so, of course, because uh, the Peorias, by the time Chief Harper had said, I want to make cultural preservation a priority, um, our tribe was not unlike other tribes that Everybody experienced class two gaming, money like we've never seen before came into our realities. And all of those things changed this trajectory that we were on. And there were certain things like cultural preservation. Um, and of course, all of these things change from one administration to the next, but it, it kind of fell down low on the priority list. 
Um, and for so many families, yours, my family include, we had our families. And so for, you know, many people, and I don't think this is unique just to our families, but some people I've always thought, well, they're um, almost just as Indian as they are comfortable in their own families. As long as they have their families with them, then, you know, that's where they kind of get that security uh, their, uh, regarding our identity. But our tribe was unique um, because we, one of the things that kind of connects all of us, no matter what family you come from, um, it has certainly impacted where we find ourselves today, is that uh, the Purias were subject to a federal termination, um, a federal an American policy. Um, it was a federal act called uh, the Termination Act. So us, along with 108 other tribes in this country, we were terminated by the federal government. And essentially, they, with just the swipe of a pen, said, we no longer recognize you. You all basically don't exist. You no longer have particular rights as a sovereign nation. And that was pretty devastating for every tribe that that happened to. And our tribe, we did ultimately, 20 years later, reestablish under Chief Rodney Arnett He's the one who ushered us into uh, reinstatement and becoming federally recognized again. It was a, a crawl at that point because um, it had a pretty devastating impact on our tribe. It's the one thing that no matter any Peoria living right now, it doesn't matter age, gender, nothing where they live. It's the one common denominator that we all share together. And why I'm bringing that up is because that has had a huge impact on our identity. Um, assimilation is, in fact, a real thing. That was, in fact, the objective that the federal government had when they did try to terminate tribes. They just wanted to sever any responsibilities, forget what the treaties ever said, any promises that they had ever made to these nations. It was just, it just flatlined. So during that time, if it weren't for particular families that you and I happen to be blessed to come from, even in those 20 years, there were Indians, fortunately, Peorias that said, we don't need the federal government to say whether we're, you know, here or not. We know we are. And whether they say we're terminated, it doesn't matter. And they had the wherewithal and the resilience at that time. And it wasn't just women. There were tons of men also. Sometimes drug into those situations, but um, they continued to stay organized. And it was an effort that when I look back at it now, I think it was almost kind of Herculean at that point. There was no internet. Everybody had a landline. Not everybody had a phone. Um, not everybody had a vehicle. Um, you know, we're terminated in 56 and we get reinstated in 76. And if you just look at the historical timeline of what was going on at that time, it's just a miracle that we were able to stay connected and semi-organized as much as they possibly could. Um, I remember stories uh, that I'm sure you do too. Our family members would go and drag people out of a watering hole because they needed a quorum for right. a business committee meeting. Right. Or, you know, I remember a I told you about my aunt Fan having our entire tribal citizenship on a spiral notebook on her dining room table. And we were just so comfortable, you know, 
with those things being around, but people would pass the hat at meetings so that like donations right. to church. And it was just for postage so they could send postcard announcements to people in snail mail and things that our tribe now absolutely, and those stories have to be remembered by the way, but our tribe now, you know, I look around and I think, wow, there are some old folks that if they saw this now, would <laughs> be amazed at how uh, different things are. We wouldn't be doing the things we are now if it wasn't for those handful of families that stayed together and said, we don't care what the government says. We know who we are and we're going to stay organized. And fortunately, it culminated to a point following kind of the civil rights movement and the early 70s. Um, I think the American Indian movement had a gargantuan uh, amount to do with that as well, that finally folks in Congress realized, ah, that may not have been the best thing to do. Yeah. So. And not every tribe that was terminated became reinstated. In fact, one of the tribes locally in this area, they just reacquired their federal recognition in 2000. So when I look at kind of when you say planning for cultural preservation and the things for the future, we really have to have an appreciation and remember what was happening even 25 30, 50 right. years ago. Right. Um, and that's part of what we uh, really want to put our energy into preserving so that we can continue to let the story be as whole as it can be. Uh, the 20th century did a pretty good number on a lot of tribes <laughs> in this country. Yeah. And the Peorias were definitely one of them. Do you remember the first time that you were aware? of your that you were a native american um i will answer it this way i don't remember a time not ever knowing i was a native american right. yeah. my family uh did a a pretty stellar job in my opinion of making sure that it was our way of life and um i think that the first time my mom Kind of bundled me up. Um, I attended Ottawa Powwow and I was about two and a half weeks old. And as the story goes, of course, I do not remember that. But um, it was uh, layers of family and not just our immediate family um, because of how there are nine tribes crammed in this corner of the state, in this county. The tribes in this area really depended on each other. And there was just such a a rich sense of community. Now, of course, people always say, well, hindsight's 2020, and we always remember things better than they were. And well, things were different than they are now. And what I do recognize is that there are many things that were different back then that I would do anything <laughs> to have, you know, back in that community. But a lot of the tribes, for example, the Peorias were one of four tribes in this area, the Modocs, Ottawa's. Um, Wine dots and us were all terminated, and here were the other five tribes that were kind of like, wow, they saw what that how it nearly decimated our tribe and that community. So you know what they did? They absorbed all of us. So in this area, there was just such an intertribal sense of connectedness, and that's why I have you know Ottawa relatives and Shawnee relatives and people that um, it it was something and i 
I appreciate this about being Indigenous or Native that it's when something happens to one of us, it kind of happens to all of us. Yeah. That's yeah. why even, you know, during COVID, what was happening with our state and Governor Stitt and, you know, all of the things that were impacting all, it didn't matter if you were just Peoria or, you know, it was all of us at the same time. So um, all of those things, I, when I look back at, you know, my first recognition, I just never not known a time that, and I lend that completely to my family. Like you and I have talked about, we also have been uh, aware all of our lives that we are actually we So, of course, yeah. a lot of people know that the purees are, uh, and sometimes I, I kind of tilt my head a little bit when I listen because people say, oh, well, the purees are confederated. And well, we are, but that wasn't my choice. And that was something that at the time of removal, when our folks were moved to what at that time was Northeast Kansas, before they were kind of marched down to Indian Territory, they were all kind of herded together. And uh, the government is who actually said, okay, we're going to put these Weas and Piankashaws yeah. and Kaskaskias and together, together yeah. and call us the Grand Purias. That's what they called us at the time. And um, which has been super fun. My family, when we say we're, we're the grand furious, but <laughs> our point is, is that we, the families like the skies um, and your family have known always going back all those years that were we and the yeah. we are actually a sub tribe of the Miamis. And so um, that's why we're so close to the Miamis and why we consider them our relatives. Our languages are identical and the Sky family has known that for a long, long time. Yeah. You know, you've been involved in some amazing things. I mean, you've made, how long have you been doing this? Like, when did you come into the tribe to do this? Uh, well, I just came back here just a little over a year ago. It's a lot to get done in a year. Uh, yeah, that, that's so true. Um, but before that, I had worked um, back in the late 90s and early 2000s. and. Um, did work at that time that we didn't have cultural preservation at that time. I was um, just strictly doing repatriation. And back then uh, we repatriated about 120 of our relatives and just under 40,000 artifacts. And um, then while I was in that role working um, with repatriation and repatriation wasn't even 10 years old, the federal policy had just passed in 1990. And so, um, uh, and I, I failed to mention to you also, I went to school at the University of Oklahoma and did get my undergraduate degree in Native American studies. And at that time, you had to pick an emphasis. So I chose uh, tribal government and policy development. And because repatriation was so new and the law was still so kind of in its infancy, I came back and started uh, doing that pretty quickly for the Purias. And um during that time, that's when I became the enrollment, also was asked to be the enrollment director for the tribe. So, which is what kept me, even though I knew your mother all my life, um, and but because of her involvement with enrollment and how important citizenship was, the integrity of our tribe's citizenship, I came to her when, before I started making kind of some big policy changes which is when I first introduced, there's a, not just criteria for citizenship and that you have to be able to 
prove particular things, but that you have to produce particular things. You have to, we can't just go on your, you know, your little baby footprints from the Baptist hospital down the road and right. you know who your folks are and that kind of thing. And, you know, when, when folks didn't have um, anything else, there was just a lot of relying on family trusts yes. and, you know, people yes. knew everybody else and that kind yes. of thing. Sometimes when there were big gaps, I would reach out to Alice and say, who are these people? And she'd have to sit there and think about it for a minute, but eventually we would always piece it together. So um, I was using at that time, which is directly tied to our constitution, the enrollment ordinance that she had helped draft shortly after we, um, she and a number of other tribal citizens, I think my mom may have even been involved with it, that uh, it was the ordinance drafted after we were reinstated. And it was with an old typewriter that they used at that time. I'm sure. So, but by this time, when we were trying to really move it to a different direction, it was introducing software. And that was tricky with some of the old school elders that were like, ah, I don't know about this. And so um, at that time also, we had legal counsel that we could take to them and say, what do you see? What else do we need to do? Um, it just took it to different levels, but she enjoyed every part of it and um, was still on the enrollment committee at that time. And so uh, it took two times, two runs at the general council, um, but it eventually passed. And I'm still very proud of that, even though, like all policy, it's in need of kind of some updates again, but that's healthy. That's the right thing to do. Yeah, it is the right thing. Constantly revisit yeah. and make sure, um, you know, we're doing the best that we can in whatever era that we find ourselves. Yeah. My mom was always so proud of her work on that. I mean, I think that when I think about my mom, I think about how diligent she was to that and how important those meetings were to her and how, you know, and then when she passed away, they came to me and said, would you, you know, they wanted me to take her, not take her place. You can never take her place, but <laughs> just to, you know, and then just to sit there and it took a while to figure enrollment out. You know, it's like, sure. um, it's not, it's not an easy thing. It's, it's complex. And, you know, it's like highly confidential, highly complex. And, People say, what does a bloodline look, look like? And I always compare it to it looks like a basketball bracket. That's what I always say. You know, if you look at the pure, um, that's the visual that people, the only visual that I can think of. Um, but my mom was so incredibly proud to be a part of that. And she took it very seriously, just like I take it very seriously. Okay, so we can't, all the things you've done, one of the things, one of your big projects has been. Five, the five moons. Um, so talk about what that is, how you got involved in it, um, because I think it's really fascinating. That whole thing is really fascinating. And I love the cultural aspect of that. Yeah. It's, uh, it, again, was just a huge honor, actually, to be involved in that in any way. And um, I had literally... Uh, I remember when I first started, uh, the First Americans Museum had its grand opening on September 18th. And I started two days later working for the Purius. So I met Chief Harper down there. And of course, that museum. And 
oddly enough, when I was working for the Purists before, that was just a concept. We just saw blueprints and that kind of thing. So to go 25 years later and then we're finally there, it was just, you know, so fantastic. And every tribe that was represented there and it was just such a happy day for indigenous native people that it was a really wonderful opportunity. But I noticed um, and had known that the first Americans museum have, has a, a particular theater that's called the five moons theater. Well, we know that the five moons includes our own tribal citizen, Mosseline Larkin, yes. uh, yeah. who was Peoria and Eastern Shawnee. Mm-hmm. And so when the Five Moons Dance Festival that is headed off by the University of Oklahoma School of Dance, they, during COVID, unfortunately, um, it wasn't planned that way, but it was already kind of in the works. And OU School of Dance wanted to do something that was a five-year initiative. Mm-hmm. And so it was going to be five years and uh, it was going to be a festival that honored the five moons. And each year they wanted to honor each one of the individual five moons. Well, the first year that they started, um, they approached the Osages because of course their two ballerinas, Maria and Marjorie Tallchief. Yes. Um, now remember five. So the Osages said, yes, we'll do it. But they wanted to honor both sisters at the same time. And so uh, they all plan that and then COVID hits. So it delayed it for about a year. And in 2021, they rolled out the very first Five Moons Dance Festival. The festival is a three-day event. Um, There's um, an opening reception on Friday evening, Saturday. It's just an all-day symposium. Uh, And then on the last day is an actual uh, production that includes OU School of Ballet dancers, as well as dance companies from across the country. Um, and so the Osages have the first five moons dance festival in 2021, and then they wanted to honor Mausoline. So our tribe, uh, was approached and I think almost a year ago. And of course, one of the things that we also wanted to do, we reached out to the Eastern Shawnees because we, even though she was a citizen of our tribe, we didn't want to exclude her, um, her Eastern Shawnee heritage at all. And so it coincidentally, the festival occurred at the same time they were having their elections for chief and it was just impossible, but we had their support and, and they were, you know, just so fantastic about everything. So we proceed with uh, the festival. It happened in September of this year, but funny enough, the festival was planned on a date set, right? But they did not know that it was also the same weekend as a home game in Norman. So they said, do you think that'll be a problem? And we said, well, there's going to be 90,000 people there for a football game and it's going to be difficult to find a place to park. And, you know, it might be difficult to get the same, generate the same interest. So for the first time ever, we suggested and said, what if we had the reception the first two days at First Americans Museum, and then we'll have the actual production on the Norman campus. Um, And that worked out beautifully. Of course, we also got to have the festival uh, symposium in the Five Moons Theater. And so what we did to really honor Mausoline was we also included her son, tribal citizen Roma Jasinski, 
Um, we also asked Maggie Boyette, who was not only Peoria and Shawnee, but she was also a student of Mausoleum's. She was also a graduate of the OU School of Dance. And so just the culmination of all of uh, this with not only us, but, you know, we wanted to represent Mausoleum on behalf of Peoria Nation so well, but OU School of Dance, all of the previous folks that have been involved with the festival, um, there are other nations involved in this because this is, as you know, it's, it's bigger than even just any one single tribe. There's a reason why uh, all five women are memorialized forever in the state capital in the rotunda. Um, this was something they elevated all of us. And so, and for Indian women, it was critically important, but what we were able to do at the symposium we kind of treated it, uh, we had a one-on-one -on -one with Roman. And it was so fantastic. I liked pretending that we were like James Lipton inside the actor's studio. <laughs> yes. And we were seated on our seated yes. on comfortable furniture. And I asked him questions and then just let him talk. Because, of course, he also, ballerina, um, both of his parents were ballerinas. But his Peoria perspective is what I was just so grateful for because he did tell stories. I mean, Mausoleum was born a year after Indians were able to obtain citizenship in this country. They couldn't vote. Um, they'd been in wars. They'd done all kinds of things. But, you know, people forget that, that there were some of our relatives were alive when they weren't even considered to be citizens. So she's born in 1925. and has this amazing career um, that spanned world wars, us being terminated, that federal policy. She came through, she, she and her husband started the Tulsa Ballet Company. I mean, I don't even have enough time here to tell you just the, just the enormity of the impact that she made, as well as the other uh, native ballerinas. But to be able to sit there and talk to Roman, to hear firsthand, why she loved playing down at Devil's Promenade and how Kwapaw Powwow was yes. such an important thing for her. Um, she remembers being a young girl and people throwing rocks and stones at their house here in Miami because her dad was Indian. Her mother was Russian, by the way. And um, she didn't understand. And she didn't understand why people would feel that way about, you know, Indian people. And uh, for him to share those stories that just added to but that's what a symposium is intended to do, just that educational enrichment to this is beyond more than just a beautiful ballerina. This is who she was as a person. But the thing I was the most proud of and that I thought was so impacting was she really represented and told everybody around the world. And that's how she danced in Japan or Europe or Argentina or wherever it was. And she made it clear that she is a Native American ballerina. She's Peoria and Eastern Shawnee. I mean, she, she didn't need the government recognizing her at all. So just because of her artistic form, she really elevated all of us at a time when Peoria's couldn't. And it was, it was just amazing. And beyond that, she and the other four ballerinas literally did stuff that nobody had ever seen or done before so she was um completely proud of her heritage and uh of course we are just you know so proud of her but for our tribe 
to be able to step up and say, yes, we will help celebrate this citizen of ours that um, completely impacted, uh, especially for women. She started her own um, ballet company and just had an extraordinary career when she wasn't actually dancing. And so, but she always loved to come home and she loved to come back to my, she traveled the world. She could have been more fabulous and not bothered to come back here, but she didn't. She always remembered where she came from. And um, it was just, a, we, it was a very successful festival. We were super grateful for that. And it was something that we're looking forward to the next you know, three years of the festival, which at that time will, um, I think this next year, they're honoring Yvonne Chateau, who is uh, Shawnee in Cherokee. She was also the founder of the OU School of Dance. I think they're celebrating their 60th anniversary. And then after that uh, will be the Choctaw Nation and Rosella Hightower. And because the Osages combined the two Talchi sisters, the fifth year is just going to be a culmination of honoring all of them. So it's just incredible. So you're sitting there and you're running these interviews with Roman. <laughs> you're coordinating things. You're watching the dance itself. How emotional did it make? I mean, because you know what? Here's the thing. Um, you are pretty, you're, you're a straightforward person. You're a business person. You're a straightforward person. You're kind of a direct. You, I think you get some of that from your mom. <laughs> um, so I don't really see you as necessarily... I think you had a job to do, so you were going to do it, right? And do it with pride. But I also wonder, like, in the midst of all this, like, what's little girl Charlotte thinking as she's sitting there and the emotion of this, what it really, what all of this really meant, and that you were a part of it? I really appreciate you saying it like that, because that's exactly how sometimes it could overwhelm and where I think the responsibility was so great that we correctly honor Mausoline and, but even more so to represent our nation and make sure that, you know, Jeannie, we don't get many opportunities where a window opens like that. Mm -hmm. And we had to make sure we hit that target. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think to answer your first part of your question that I think I held my breath until the festival was over. And then there was a really good, you know, kind of that laugh, cry, laugh, cry kind of thing that happened. Yes. And, yes. Um, but, but yes, the, uh, I kept looking to Roman, um, Yvonne Chateau, her daughter, um, Liz was also there. And of course the daughters of the people who put these things in place that we now are responsible for um, preserving, protecting all of that. It was just the most critical to me to know what did they think? Were they okay? Did they in endorse everything that, you know, right. they were seeing that kind of thing. Right. And um, it exceeded uh, what I think we even dreamed of. And so it was incredible. In addition, this is just a side note, but uh, the American Ballet Theater from New York City sent their two principal dancers, and they recreated a particular ballet that was the dance that Mausoline and her husband did. I believe it was in Paris. Um, it's fairly well known in the ballet world, and that they did this dance together, and it was impeccable. But during the performance of that, that's when she told Roman that she 
was expecting their son, <gasps> Roman Jasinski. Oh my so gosh. Course, they're hugging each other and it's just so amazing. They're getting a standing ovation. Everybody's so pleased, but they're not realizing that they're watching this young couple, except that they're both going to be parents for the very first time. So the gift for American Ballet Theater to bring that to the Five Moons Dance Festival was such a gesture to Mausoline and Roman. And of course, our Roman, I'm, I think you'd be okay if that we were all ball bags. I mean, it was just the most touching, wonderful, yeah. beautiful thing. Yeah. So this is kind of an example, though, of that, you know, when I first started talking cultural preservation, see, I told you cultural preservation, there's, well, there's Sharla, there's the tribal citizen, there's cultural yeah. preservation. It's just, it all swirls together. Exactly. But the other part of cultural preservation are not just the have to's which are so critical and important and we have to have particular things. Right. Right. But uh, which is what chief Harper recognized. What also sometimes emerges out of this. And for me, that's one of the things as a native woman, that if you're standing in your truth, then everything else just will take care of itself. And so our obligation to that, that responsibility is so important. And when something like a fine arts comes out of it as well, it's just the most wonderful moving. It's kind of the same way the impact of film that sometimes that can just, or music just in such a quick, it can sum up so many things that we could read that, you know, particular book or study and examine these things and do whatever but you don't get that immediate feeling that it kind of, right, you know, right. transports you to another place. And so um, it was, it was amazing. It was great. And, you know, Mausoline stood in her truth. Didn't she though? She stood and uh, talk about an example of someone that stood in their truth. Yes, she did. And um, believe it or not, we're out of, we're just about out of time. So I have one more question. You and I could talk all day. Let's I know. <laughs> we could literally talk all day. Um, when, when people in our audience think about, um, the Native American woman in 2022, what do you want them to know about her? She's tough, <laughs> um, that she comes from women before her that sometimes through just sheer force of will, um, made the way possible for her to be here right now. And she possesses that same strength. She possesses that same tenacity. Um, and she also, if she has the courage, that's the moment of truth. If she has the courage and the bravery to make certain that she exercises that sheer force of will, then she can do anything. And the other thing I would volunteer that sometimes that has carried me through my life is that if she can remember, and this was told to me a long time ago, an elder that has helped me a lot. She needs to constantly remember as a native woman that you need to know what the, the rules are of dominant society or popular culture, always remembering your own from within yourself but you need to be aware of what's going on out there and know it twice as well. So there's no, you know, don't let anybody dismiss you. Don't, you are not invisible. And, um, and you just need to know the rules of the game the best that you can. So. 
Well, Charlotte, you certainly aren't invisible, and I'm really <laughs> thankful to be your sister in the tribe. I'm grateful for and, you. Um, every time this I talk, to amazing you, platform. <laughs> <laughs> every time I talk to you, teach me things, and um, and I appreciate that very much. So, everyone today, uh, my guest has been Charlotte Echohark, and we're so glad to have her. And um, I hope you all enjoy just hearing her story and um, how much she really does love the tribe. And especially I'm so glad we covered the five moons. So everybody have a great day and um, connect with us here on bloodlines. Thank you, Charlotte. Oh.